This week, Paul and I interview April Wright, hacker, author, teacher, and InfoSec community leader. In the news, an iOS flaw in Safari leads to trivial denial of service via CSS. Global warming impacts uh, cloud computing for a second time, and data breaches are shown to have long-term effects on stock prices. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome, everyone, to episode 32, our 33rd episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlett, and I'm excited to be joined once again by my illustrious co-host, Paul Asadorian. Hey, how's it going, Keith? Dude, it's going great. Uh, you know, it looks like fall is starting to set in here. I'm uh, pretty pretty well on my way to finishing some slides that I've put together for a couple talks in October, so life is good. What about you? How's things? You know, it's interesting as we talk about talks, Keith, and I just, while the show was starting, I was just reading a tweet about threat hunting, and I'm going to talk about that in my DerbyCon talk, and I remembered working at university, and I used a tool called the IP Audit, and then I published an article, it's a security focus, I think before Symantec bought them, but the article still lives, right? And when I read it, I'm like, holy crap, that's like threat hunting, <laughs> and it was published in 2005, <laughs> so... It's like, that's pretty cool. Prequels of threat hunting. Yeah. So I'm having fun researching my DerbyCon talk as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. One quick announcement. Check out our on-demand material. Some of our previously recorded webcasts are now available on demand at securityweekly.com slash on demand. So go check it out. We got some stuff by Endgame, Logarithm. I think Black Hills is in there too. Uh, So John Strand and the team over there is pretty awesome. And you should definitely go check that out. Uh, with that, I am very happy to join, or to rather to welcome, uh, April Wright, the Preventative Security Specialist at ArchitectSecurity.org. April has a history of, uh, you know, lots of stuff, basically, that she's done in the community, including speaking at Black Hat, DEF CON, DerbyCon, Hack in Paris, DEF Camp Romania, IT Web South Africa, and a number of other conferences as well, including, I believe, DEF CON Group's core team uh, and went to DEF CON China recently. And also, by the way, uh, founded DC617, of which uh, I helped to give some space to uh, when they got off the ground. So with that being said, of course, again, an awesome author, hacker, teacher, and community-involved uh, individual slash leader. April, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. It's nice to have awesome. you here in so, studio, too. Thanks for making the trek down. It's awesome. 
I'm I'm glad to have a car that I can drive here in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially like when when so many of us. Well, I, I live remote, right? So I kind of have to have a car, but because I don't really go anywhere in it, it's like, oh yeah, is the car going to get me there this week? Maybe. <laughs> um, the last so time I drove, I got car. a flat tire with a hole like the size of, that you could put like your fist in it, and um, oh. so I I didn't drive after that. I'm like Massachusetts roads are the worst. So now I have like an SUV with like until really you tough get tires. to Rhode Island, the, the, the second worst. Sure. I think. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, so April, you've been doing uh, you know a lot lately. Um, before we jump into talking a little bit about SDLC and the book you recently released with O'Reilly. Um, what have you been up to lately and where can people find you next after they uh, you know, get a chance to sit here and listen to you today? So I've been doing uh, security awareness train the trainer programs. So um, at Black Hat, I did a train the trainer program about how to build an effective security awareness program rather than just your once yearly click through it as fast as possible kind of computer based training. So this is more about throughout the year, how you um, how you actually get people involved in uh, security awareness, how you make people care, which is the hardest part, how you break all the bad habits. Um, I gave it a black hat with Jason Street. Um, we're doing it again at DerbyCon and then at uh, Texas Cyber Summit um, in San Antonio, and there's still seats available for that one. Awesome. Awesome. Now, um, one of those things that I think, you know, all security professionals uh, have a hard time with is really getting people interested or involved. Are there any maybe just, you know, again, don't want to give away the whole farm here with the training that, that you're actively giving. But um, are there any tips that stick out to you as, you know, simple things? Is it, you know, don't make them click through, make them in person? Are there high level things that people can be doing um, to get the word out there a little bit easier inside of their organization? Yes. Um, make it relevant to them. Uh, people care about things that affect them. If it, if it doesn't affect me, why would I care? So if you can make it so that it relates to their life, if you can trick them into thinking it's really about protecting their teenagers when they can also use the advice, um, it's, it's all useful. So keeping them engaged by making it uh, relevant to their interests, their lives, their needs. When they see their phone connecting to your Hack 5 Pineapple, um, that's personal. That's a, that's, they're going to think about that more than just a presentation about how people connect to Pineapples. You know, it's interesting. I was doing an a interview with um, an IT uh, YouTube channel. Guy Zach, he's actually coming on Secure Digital Life. And he was asking me like like tips I have for people that um, are coming to work in security or whatever. And it's exactly what you're saying, April, is is my like one like really easy, stupid, simple tip because I read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? And the the one thing that I remember, I got to go back and reread it reread it because there's a lot more in there. But the one thing was every time I uh, construct an outbound communication is I make it about them. And I try and relate it to the person I'm sending it to. And so often... I get email and communications and I can see this happening in SDLC, right? Like you must do this and run this software and find all the bugs in your code, but you get such a better response when you make it about them and not about you. And uh, so that was, that was good advice. I like it. I would also say that um, by gamifying it as much as possible, uh, that also really helps. So if you have a, let's say quarterly, uh, giveaway for a gift card or uh, money. So always get everybody loves money. Um, and then for every time mm. some, mm. <laughs> most people love money. Most people, most people most need people. money. Let's put it that way. I like so, money. Do you like money? I like money. We should hang out. 
<laughs> if you get that movie reference. See, she does. April gets all of my jokes. The people that work here at Security Weekly are, are awesome, but they often, maybe I'm just not funny. It could also be part of it. That's definitely part of it. And they don't get a lot of my, my movie references. So if you don't want to end up on Monday Night Rehabilitation, then <laughs> <laughs> then you have like a, a giveaway or something at the end of the quarter. And everybody that submits like a phishing email to, uh, to the SOC um, or whoever they're supposed to report it to, they get a point. If they escort somebody who is in the building without a badge to security, they get 10 points. So you, you, you create like a, a, a point system and you let everybody know about it. And then as they do their jobs, they will think, hey, if I do the right thing, I could be rewarded. It's like Pavlov's dog, but without the bell with money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which it's could, all about rewards. It can exactly. work with your kids too. I've tried several programs like that with my kids. Mostly <laughs> my kids being hackers, they just try and cheat the system. And if I have it on a whiteboard, like when I'm not looking, my oldest son will go in there and change it. Or, you know, they always find ways to cheat, which is a lot of fun, actually. But it's okay if people are reporting phishing that isn't really phishing. Sure. I mean, as long as they're not really abusing the system. If yeah, they're, like if they're every like email that comes in, they're just clicking right, the button right. to try and get but points. But that's why you make that worth like one point and other real valid things like escorting somebody or reporting a vish or, mm -hmm. um, or, or reporting a spearfish even or something like that worth a lot more points. Do they lose a point if they report an email that was they thought was phishing but really wasn't? Do you deduct points? I that could be fun. I never thought of that. I don't know that if every one, but like if you if you reach five, like maybe you lose a point. I would say no because um, then that discourages them from doing it. Yeah, and you no, you're right. you'd rather you want them to be your advocates. You want them to be working for you, and you want them to be doing it because um, it it reflects their interests. They like money. But now, <laughs> uh, Jason Street, who you're teaching a, a class with, yeah. right, and you're very good friends with. Um, he has kind of the opposite view when we were talking on Paul Security Weekly and he was advocating for repercussions if you were the cause of, let's say, a major data breach. Um, well, it, yes and no. So you have to have a policy that talks about um, what happens if somebody falls for a real fish mm -hmm. or if somebody falls for a test fish. Um, and that the first couple of times you need to respond with training mm -hmm. because even if you brought in new people, even if let's say you fired that person, who, uh, you fell for a fish, you're fired, you'd still have to train the next person. Sure. So you may as well I got train that, that person yeah. mm -hmm. and keep them. And if they keep falling for fishes and this is where you have to have the policy, five, five spearfishing <laughs> clicks and you're yeah. out, you know, like right. whatever the right. rule is, like you need to have that specified and make sure people know about it and all mm. the other policy type, type situations. But, um, yeah, training is the response first, and then you can have repercussions. I mean, yeah. training is a repercussion. It is, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and it also, especially for like really high risk individuals, like um, uh, executive admins, for mm. example, or sales people that are opening a lot of attachments, dealing mm -hmm. with customers, they should also have role based training about how to handle attachments. Do you have a VM that you open attachments in? Right. Do you, right. How do you how do you securely do things that relate to your job versus everybody getting here's what a fish is and mm. you know, whatever like having actual this is how somebody might attack you as a customer service rep phone representative mm -hmm. this is what they might do they might call five times in a row and try to get different information so um so the y you need to work closely with the the sock 
and um, incident response and things like that and try to figure out how attacks are happening. Um, and, and over time as you're doing training and you're doing programs to decrease that, then you can track metrics about how, um, how that's improved, how the incidents are decreasing, for example, as you're uh, building the program. And is that good for developers too? Same rewards and consequences type systems? Although if you're going to get rid of a developer after five bugs, you, you might not have developers pretty quickly. <laughs> At least if I'm one of the developers, <laughs> I wouldn't last very long in that environment. <laughs> I um not it, not exactly in the same way. Mm. So that's that's bugs, not social engineering. Right. Or that or bugs or flaws. I mean they're different. So that so when we're talking about social engineering, that's mm. a completely different category of vulnerabilities. That's the human element versus the code or architecture element. Yeah. And and actually, uh, April, you just recently wrote a book on this, if I'm not mistaken, again, released by O'Reilly, uh, called Fixing an Insecure Software Development Lifecycle. Can you tell us more about it? First of all, like, you know, who the audience maybe is, because I'm sure some of our listeners will probably go pick it up. But then um, maybe talk us through a little bit of like some of the different things that you've included in the book uh, as useful things for managers or developers or security professionals to get them interested in this process. Yep. So uh, it's available on Safari Books Online. It is a short book. It's not a full hundreds of pages. It's about 100 pages. Oh, wait, um, is the electronic version free? No, you have to subscribe to Oh, I haven't clicked start reading yet. <laughs> Um, but uh, so you you can read it online, and it's um, it's aimed at anybody involved in the software development lifecycle. So anybody that uh, from from a, a project manager to a product manager to a security person who is tasked with uh, fixing a life or coming into a lifecycle that already exists. So software is being created. Let's say there's a startup, there's a process for creating software already, there's software out there, and then maybe they hire an official security team. So they bring in the security team, and the security team looks at the process, and the, the book talks about how to uh, observe the process from start to finish, maybe once, maybe a couple times, uh, do a gap analysis, how to prioritize those gaps, how to present them to management with a business case and other types of uh, rationale, and then how to um, how to implement change, and that's probably one of the hardest things that we do uh, in security. I think is implementing change, because we have to get buy-in, we have to do it slowly, um, because if we do make too much change all at once, then it causes problems, and people push back, and people actively work against us, <laughs> which happens all the time in security. So if we ease people into change, it talks about that. It's got sample checklists. It talks about how to um, how to provide uh, everything up front to people so that they're not surprised about what they have to do. Because if, if you get all the way through the software lifecycle and you get from uh, design to uh, testing, and then it's about to go into production and you say, oh, but we didn't do any security, that is not going to happen. That's going to drop off the table. So it's about how to get it in there before so that there's no surprises. Everybody knows what to expect. And and the product that comes out is more secure and preventing bugs rather than finding them later. Yeah, but can I so just apply security at the end with a WAF? Doesn't that? Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that totally works. So only if it's... Only if it's signal sciences, Paul. Yes. Um. That, that's a next generation <laughs> WAF. Very big difference. I... We still need operational controls. We still need people that are doing defense and um, and threat hunting and these other things. But we 
if we don't start with a strong foundation, mm. then their job may be impossible because we don't have the right logs coming out. Um, if we design software so that it's secure, then we can have the software actually contain attackers. We can have them move to um, to other uh, types of like uh, cyber deception type areas. We can do different things from the software perspective, but if we don't have logs, security logs coming out of the software, then there's n very little that the blue team can do. I have an interesting scenario that I want to run by you, April. We were actually talking about this on Paul's Security Weekly last week, and it was, if you do the threat modeling and you try and get ahead of it, like you're saying, as much as possible, right? And you develop the requirements, you do your threat modeling, and then you start handing, Keith just dropped off, that was interesting. And then you start handing it to developers, right? you may have thought about security in the early in the process. However, it gets to the developers and they're like, all right, that's interesting with the requirements. Maybe they were in some of those meetings. You know what? To satisfy that requirement, I'm going to go get some open source library <laughs> and I'm gonna, that's going to help me meet my requirement. Now, it, it granted, that could contain a vulnerability that we could find very easily early in the process. But what if it doesn't? What if it's an open source library that someone wrote about a year ago and unbeknownst to the software developer, the open source project maintainer goes, yeah, I'm all done with that. And it doesn't even make an announcement, like just stops updating it and stops accepting requests. Now you've got this open source library in your code and you're marching forward, incurring technical debt the further and further you go because at some point you're going to find out that, holy crap, there's a ton of vulnerabilities in that library and they just recently came to light and now we've missed that. That's a problem with anything in terms of documentation. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> I have this book. It's the funniest thing. It's like four pages long. It's, uh, uh, I won't even say the organization it came out of. It's, it's about writing documentation for like Unix admins or something. <laughs> it's the shortest book ever. And we are so bad at writing documentation, but that's exactly why we need it. That's exactly why we need to have the information about what's in our products. And I think that's part of why, and I I know it's like a four letter word, but like GDPR is, a, a it, it does have some good elements because it makes us look at what we're doing. A lot of companies didn't know what data they had. They didn't know what they were protecting. They didn't know what their crown jewels were. So by making people actually consider what's in the software, what makes the software work, what data do we have, by, by requiring the company to consider those things, I think that's really important. And I don't think we do it enough. And that is a huge problem that we have these unmaintained software libraries. And I think that if we start using things like um, a style guide, mm -hmm. which uh, requires uh, developers to use certain libraries, for example, instead of getting their own. Yep. Um, I think that help. that is, uh, yeah, I think. But someone has to check in on that process, right? Whether it's in the style guide or it's not. Like it, uh, it's to back up your point to say, like, you got to design it right from the beginning with security in mind that you have to take into account that scenario and go, when you do this, you will use this library. And by the way, there's a process in place that every three months or so, we go check on those libraries to make sure that no one's abandoned it, that it maybe doesn't have vulnerabilities, or if it did, that we update it and, you know, the whole thing. And that has to be in the process. There has to be some kind of check and balance for that specific scenario, which I believe so many organizations like Equifax completely left out of the equation. And I'm not picking on Equifax because they made mistakes that I've seen every single company, my own included, make over the years, right? 
Now, making them all in, in a row like that was the perfect storm. But again, don't be too hard on, you know, all companies make mistakes and don't make the right decisions when it comes to these things. But, you know, that's an example of the library issue that I, I, as we talk on this show, Keith, and it's been really apparent to me that that's a major problem, right? Because when we talk about Node.js that has all those add-on packages, when we talk about developing browser extensions, those are really just more open source add-ons that are being dumped in. I mean, we've, how long have we talked about WordPress plugins you know, being the same thing. And this could come back down to a Python library. Uh, I mean, we experienced it here with our own, you know, internal software. We're just, you know, developing, developing. Hey, when's the last time, like, we actually updated all of our libraries? And we're like, oh, man. And then when you update them, now you've got so much worse. So it's not even just security. It's technical debt in general that I think is a result of this problem. I think that DevOps automation can solve a little, maybe not solve a little bit of that, but come into play. So let's say that DevOps automation detects new libraries that are being used. And then you can look into them, you can track them, you can add them to some kind of program. Um, that can help. Uh, you can also have a procedure or um, or uh, 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 procedure or uh, uh, process that support the policy of secure software. And then um, that can say, anytime you want to use a new library, you have to get approval. And then that approval uh, includes adding it to some sort of list or database or spreadsheet or whatever maturity level you're at. And then um, so you can have checks and balances. You can have people say, well, you know, this hasn't been maintained in two years. Let's not use it. Find something else or write something. Mm. Um, that so could almost be a function of QA. Like, let the developer put it in submit it to QA, and then QA does that discovery and says, well, you've got to go get back and get approval or you have to do something if you really want to use this library. But you could, so you could feed into QA from DevOps automation where it's detecting new libraries that are in use and then feeding that to QA saying, and then QA says, you know, well, we, this wasn't here before, why are we using it now? And then you have justification and... It's all about documentation, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that process a lot, actually. That's the best answer I've heard to that when I've put it out to people. So, I have a, a kind of a chicken and egg type question that I always go back to, especially as people are moving more toward DevOps and, and we get some pushback from development teams on documentation. Um, what is more important, coming up with the process in the form of documentation first or building the process in terms of practicing it to make sure that it works appropriately and then documenting what has worked? Like what, what have you found to be more successful in kind of your, your working with a number of different companies, April? So a lot of times when you have an informal process and you try to document it, you will see the problems in the process. I think that it, it is a chicken and an egg scenario. So you have to be you have to do the process. Let's say you go through it once, and then you do um, you look back and and you say, okay, well let let's document what we did, and let's see what worked and what didn't. And maybe that's once a quarter, maybe not every time, but um, but actually, when you diagram it out, when you write something on a whiteboard, you will see the problems that are happening. You will see where things are failing. You will see where the delays are. And then you can go back and fix them. If it's just an undocumented process, you may never discover those problems. That's a really good point. And um, that's something that I think uh, a lot of developers have a hard time grasping because, uh, you know, the code is documentation is kind of the way they like to think of it, going back to their agile methodologies. But um, maybe a, another good question as well as, so if you're well, a listener. On, wait, I want to go back to that of, point. 
Is that really true? Because that, that's one concept that I, I learned when I was a full-time programmer, learning from more experienced programmers. And they said, if you, know, if you develop the, and I think it's the code complete from Microsoft Press also talks about this. Like if you write the most beautiful code ever, you don't add any comments or documentation because the code just documents itself. Have you ever gone back to code that you've written yeah. and tried, and even code that you wrote like six months ago and been like, what is this even Six do? months. I, I get in in the morning. I'm like, I wrote yeah. that yesterday. Uh, yeah. Damn, what does that do? Uh, you have to have at least something that says what the function does <laughs> or what this is supposed to do. Because oh. if if, um, if you get hit by a bus or, you know, worst case scenario, um, I, I, I hate to use the, the negative things, but let's say you go on vacation. Um, <laughs> Instead of getting hit by a bus. Wait, Terrible so example. You go on vacation and get hit by a bus? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> Instead of oh, getting hit or, by a bus. Oh, it's an or, not an Oh, I got So you. let's say the best case scenario. You go on vacation and another developer has to edit your code or the code. Um, and they go in and they're like, I don't know what this does. There's going to be that learning curve that you're going to be spending more time. And there's one thing that developers don't have enough of and that's time. So in, in my eyes as well, one of the things that a lot of people don't think about is there's ultimately going to be someone else that's not a developer that probably needs to under, understand the way the software works, right? Like at the end of the day, if you get an API and it's not documented, nobody can use it except the developers that wrote the API. Um, so that's that's another important aspect of that. Now, if you're a listener, say you're a manager or even a, a maybe a development team and you're interested in starting to get security, you know, integrated into part of the process um are, are there any maybe high level tips that you would want to share with the listeners in terms of you know ways that they could get started uh either today or after a little bit of research it's a good question <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> I, I think that um i think that a lot of times we understand some of the problems and a lot of times we don't have any idea what the problems are we just know that there are problems we don't know what they are specifically so um, as with any change that you want to make, you start with observing. You sit back, you say, I'm not going to make any changes. I just want to see what's happening. I just want to understand the process. And maybe you do it two, three, five, however many times it takes you, and you, you document the things that you notice. You document what's happening. You document uh, who's talking to who. You document who's approving things, what kind of meetings are happening. And then you start to have, you say, you know, this meeting happened, but nobody actually approved the architecture. Or this meeting happened, but, uh, or, or this, uh, the development started, but we, we weren't even finished with how the switch was going to be set up, and we didn't have enough ports and some other things. So, like, what are some of the things that you notice? So it's analysis at first before you make changes. And I think that's the key is that we, a lot of us want to go in and we want to say, okay, let's implement this and let's do this and let's add this and we're going to do code reviews and all these other things. But until you know how code reviews are going to help you and until you know um, that your problem is that you aren't doing code reviews, then implementing that and, and that, that gets back to metrics too, um, until you have a baseline of what your metrics are, how many of your bugs are security bugs? How many of your flaws, which are different from bugs, that I always try to talk about that flaws are architecture and bugs are code to me. Um, so how many of your, uh, how many of those are uh, based on code versus uh, architecture? Who is uh, creating most of the security problems? Is it one person? Is it one team? Um, so having metrics and doing analysis before making any changes is the very first step you have to take. If you don't have any 
metrics to begin with, you're not going to know when you make progress. You're not going to be able to show that you're making progress. And when you do buy that code analysis tool and you do implement it, how are you going to show that it's making any difference? How are you going to justify that purchase and that time investment if you can't show that it's actually making a difference? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's one of those things where it's, you know, if you've bought it and you don't show any forward movement with it, then very, very quickly, it's like, okay, um, so so why do we buy this again? And it's not going to get renewed. And then suddenly, you know, you're now knee jerk reaction for, for the development teams. I was developing and I was using this tool and now we can't because it's no longer getting renewed, um, which builds uncertainty, which I think, you know, before the show, we were talking about how. Uh, uncertainty can be uh, interpreted as pain in the brain, as I think what you were sharing with us, April. So um, that was interesting as well. I know that we've we've got at least a few more minutes for this segment. Uh, Paul, did you have any other additional questions before I got to my special five questions for April? No, let's do the special five questions for April. Are they cool. tailored just for April, or are these the same five questions we ask everyone? So, so normally I ask more related uh, questions, but uh, you know, from speaking with and knowing April, April works more on the process procedure side. So this is a little bit different. Uh, I'd say oh, it's, you it's get special in questions. the vein of, wow. you it's other special, special for just April in this case. Um, so first of all, though, the, the first question is the same, which is what were the specs like on your first computer? Huh. Um, I think my first computer was, so I used an Apple two GS at school. Um, I, 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 feel like my first computer was a Commodore 64. We might have had something before that, but the first computer I remember was the There's Commodore There's no 64. way you're old enough for that. No I, way. I don't believe I you. I am. I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm older than I look. No way. <laughs> what were you, like, <laughs> uh, early elementary school? We'll talk about it later. All right. <laughs> we won't disclose <laughs> such, such things on air. Uh, so <laughs> then uh, let me also ask, what is your favorite editor for writing in? Since, you know, you've written a book, I'm, I'm sure you probably write a, a good amount of documentation as well. Um, when you sit down to write something, what editor do you end up in usually? Um, either Word or Google Docs. Um, it depends on, I have multiple computers and I travel a lot. So sometimes Google Docs is the best way to keep everything together. Um, but I also have Google Docs backed up to multiple computers <laughs> and I have it in like other clouds to the, and Google Docs is backed up to other clouds. So it's uh, redundant cloud backups for everything, including especially things I write. I lost a presentation once because of redundant cloud stuff and never again. <laughs> I was thinking that it was maybe like you overwrote an old version or a new version with an old version because of redundant cloud. I could see that being a version control problem, maybe. Something just um, com completely disappeared. It was just gone. Oh, wow. Like, so it's like yeah. there. I used to do all my presentations on a Mac with Keynote until I realized as you start updating Keynote, all of a sudden you can't open your older Keynote files. And that's when I decided on Google Slides because you can more easily share it, I think is my, my driver there. Uh oh, I'm gonna have to go back and do all my slides again now. Um, <laughs> with that, with that being said, uh, April, what is your favorite technical book if you have one? Um, I, uh, ooh, that's a good question. Um, Chris Hadnagy's uh, social engineering book is amazing. It create it makes it the art into a science. Um, my, but uh, looking back. I learned Unix 
in detention by reading the Unix Sysadmin handbook. <laughs> it was this red book. No it's a beautiful, it? beautiful. It has one paragraph on security. But I was in detention and I was on like IRC and I was doing like PPP account into a, um, a shell account. And Is that why you got detention? N- no. <laughs> oh, okay. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got in trouble a lot with my parents about it because I was staying up late being on IRC. But, right. um, but so I read this Unix book. So wait, why were you in detention? I don't oh, even. We, you don't even remember, like just. It could literally be anything. <laughs> it's probably probably for skipping class because I didn't really like to get a class. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, maybe as a, a secondary or follow-up question to that, then is what is your favorite non-technical book? Um, I really liked. Uh, um, uh, I don't know exactly what it's called, like Water for Elephants. I thought that was good. Um, there was another one called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And, um, Are these fiction or nonfiction? Oh, wait. Oh, did you say nonfiction? Non, non-fiction. Non- I said oh. non-technical, so oh, it could non-technical. be either. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, that's fiction. Um because they sounded like fiction, which I don't is totally read fine. I, I don't really that, read no, that, anything. That's actually what I meant. Not, yeah. is, is honestly, it's, it's a book that you oh, enjoy okay. reading yeah. as opposed to like a technical book, okay. which you generally don't enjoy reading. Marley and Me was awesome. I read it on a plane and I was like crying. You're crying on oh the plane Oh my God, I was it. crying so much. It was so bad. Um, uh, not to give anything away, but <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler um, alert. Too late. There's sad um, parts in that book. Yeah. Damn it. That's true. Oh, uh, and I and love, there's another one, uh, Douglas yeah. Copeland, Life After God. And it, like basically <coughs> any of his books, Microsurfs. Um, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Hmm. I'll have to check him out. And last question is, uh, who would you nominate for an interview or what topic should we cover on a future episode of Application Security Weekly? Is this like, uh, like the ice bucket challenge? Yes, after that you have sure, to sort of, yeah. a bucket of ice water over your head after you recommend someone. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say uh, Johnny Christmas would be a great person to talk to. Yes. That would be a lot of fun. Yes. Has he been on I, the show? Uh, he oh. has not. Oh. I met him in person, actually, I think for the first time, which is weird. We ha- had that conversation. Like, I feel like we should have met before now, but I think this is the first time we've met in person. Kind of so thing. he yeah. and I met at... Um, at a conference last year and uh we both bonded over the fact that we call ourselves recovering introverts um because we learned how to not be introverts anymore we were both like terrible at it and just you know never talked to anybody so we both overcame it and we became speakers and other things so um we totally bonded over the recovering introvert thing mm. so yeah he, he's a great guy and um yeah, yeah he's, he's awesome we can we can get him on the shows for sure definitely definitely Awesome. Well, uh, in the meantime, we're going to take a short break, a short break, excuse me, and then come back for the news. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps tool chain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetics has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. 
fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetics provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetics.com forward slash security week. Welcome back everyone to Application Security Weekly. This is the news for the week of the sixteenth. <laughs> that was, that was really punny. Uh, <laughs> apparently I have been missing some good puns in studio while I was away. Uh, where do you I mean, do you guys need a minute to recover? Yes. <laughs> cool. Oh, this is going to be wow. so mad because it's something that we cannot repeat on air. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. So I will be continuing to, you know, be left in the dark while everyone laughs. It's okay. It's quite all right. I look forward to this. Um, so let's let's dive right into it uh, with global warming's impacts on cloud computing. Uh, so story number three under bugs, breaches, and more. I thought it was interesting this week because uh, Microsoft Azure in their southwest region uh, a couple of weeks ago had an outage. Uh, which I believe was reported as something due to like a lightning, a lightning strike or uh, some sort of you know major event that caused uh, outages to power in the region, and ultimately you know what ended up happening or the reason for the shutdown in the data center was the data center was just too hot, the cooling stopped working, and so it, it shut everything down rather than you know have damage to the servers themselves. <laughs> Uh, now, this is the second time that this has happened this year for Microsoft. They have one happen earlier this year uh, in Dublin. And so, yeah, I mean, was it I don't the know, same Paul, thing? Because it, it sounds like an architecture problem in their data centers that the servers stay running and their backup generators are working awesome, but when they lose power, there's some event. The cooling systems don't have the proper backups, which I could see because if you've ever seen cooling systems for a data center, they're massive, and you can imagine what it must take to power the cooling system off of a generator. Of course, the the generator puts off its own amount of heat, so you making sure that that's away from... Right, right, yeah. yeah. It, it does sound like a arch- data center architecture issue. Potentially. Well, I mean, there's also, uh, for me, the way I'm looking at this is I think we're going to see more of this more often, even if it's, um, you know, cooling systems are able to keep up with how many people are moving to the cloud these days and just with how hot certain regions of the world seem to be getting, the Southwest being one of them. I mean, they've had yeah. record-breaking heat all summer and as well by the way in dublin uh so parts of london and, and europe uh you know great britain etc have had record-breaking temperatures uh all season yet again and so it makes me wonder if at some point we we reach this kind of critical mass of so many systems running so hot inside of data centers and you know it's just so hot outside that you can't actually off put the the temperature uh, you know, successfully. So well, yeah, because everyone everyone dumped their physical iron and put it up all in the cloud. So like, ev- not everyone, but most people's servers now aren't in there. They're in someone else's data center, and they're all in the same similar data center. But isn't part of that problem the fact that we're trying to stick all of these like computers in so tight, trying to maximize space, mm. and they should be able. I mean, the manufacturers sh- should be able to make heat sinks and fans and things that can actually keep their stuff cool when there's other heat around. It shouldn't you be think. entirely on the data center. It, it, it is. No, that's though. true. I mean, even if yeah. our small server closet that we have, and I even use the term closet loosely, um, it, there's a, an air conditioning unit in there and uh, a sensor that sends my phone an alert if the temperature gets over like 70 degrees. Do you have like a nest in there? No, it's a smart <laughs> thing. It's a smart thing sensor actually. Uh, that monitors it, yeah. 
because it, it's amazing if the air conditioning, even if that one unit can't keep up, if the air conditioning goes off in the rest of the building, that one unit can't can't keep up. It seems like in certain parts of the world you could use more space for the data center and then have better cooling by actually having space in between the servers instead of one U, one U, one U, one U, or whatever you're doing. I, and then you can have airflow. Or li liquid yeah. cooling too. We were talking liquid earlier cooling. about uh, Microsoft under under C, under. It's like the under the under sea. The under the sea. Yes, it's like the under the sea dance, <laughs> except it's the under the sea data center. Well, and so they actually, uh, yeah, we talked about that. Gosh, I feel like it was a month or two ago mm. on the show. Um, it might it might have been Paul Security Weekly. I don't recall exactly which one, but yeah, I mean, literally, it was something that they were launching. I think off of the British Isles. Uh, that had some sort of like power generation or battery power um, that was generated based on like the waves, right? So like the motion of the ocean, uh, in this case, literally, <laughs> was what was actually charging the uh, the data center to some degree. Um, not to mention, of course, cooling as well, right? Because it was literally water cooled by being submerged. Um, and sharks with yeah. freaking laser beams. I know, right? Like now, now you've got a whole different set of threats. The Physical Russians. security. To is the that max. Their, is that their physical security? <laughs> it's sharks with laser beams. Yeah. Well, yeah. Imagine so how doing do you a pen tap. Right? You got to like, do a pen tap. You, do you have like cameras on the outside? Like. <laughs> you have sharks with cameras. Sure. I mean, um, that that is one of those situations where it's like, eventually, is the surface of the Earth going to get too hot to run data centers in you know areas that don't cost uh, too much from a space space you know location? Uh, so, for example, trying to put it in San Francisco just wouldn't happen because rent is too high, right? So, um, it it ends up being kind of this weird conundrum because uh, April, to your point, and Paul, to yours as well, from an architecture standpoint, the the reason they're doing the, you know the one u one u one u one u all the way up the stack is because they actually want to uh, maximize profits for the space mm -hmm. is is ultimately what it gets back to, right? And so, um, it's going to be hard for to convince them to say put less computing power in your data center so that it can be more easily cooled because that actually has a direct hit on potential profits, uh, which, you know, again, a lot of companies, Microsoft, Google, uh, especially Amazon, are all leaning very heavily into the cloud space from a profit standpoint because it's, you know, easy money for them, I guess, at this point. It's a so, direct hit to when your data center goes down. So it's, it's a risk-based yeah, risk decision. Way, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and not to mention just good failover processes, right? Like that would have helped a lot. And if we look at, let's say, um, people are looking at the future of farming, for example, and they're looking at vertical farming. So they're going to run into the same problems, but they're using LEDs. They're using things that are more efficient. And we are not doing that with our servers and our routers and our other things. We're not looking at more efficient servers we're looking at faster and and able to uh to have more so if we were doing more vertical data centers versus uh it takes up four acres flat and it's one one level which is what a lot of data centers that i've seen are if we if we're doing more vertical and we can have heat rising and use the um and and use i don't know all kinds of different things like uh digging into the earth to try to get I guess that's heat, but you know, trying to to use like the um, the the forces of nature for our own good, where we have um, where we have the the cooling coming from. Um, I, I don't know. 
I'm just babbling. So <laughs> in, in my mind, I, I actually I like the idea of the vertical data center, but maybe doing it down into the earth as opposed to up into the air, right? So so now you True. literally have uh, the the cooling all takes place at ground level. Um, just don't go too deep because then it gets hotter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Keith, you just started Cylon. We call that Cyloning. Oh, well. Yeah, when you talk, you sound like a Cylon. You just got to unplug your microphone and plug it back in or your USB device. So you could have like thermal power, like hydrothermal power or thermal power or something coming out of the ground. And then that's the word I was looking for. So you have thermal power coming out of the ground. You have heat rising to the top of a building and coming out almost like a cooling tower, maybe like with, uh, I mean, I'm just speculating at this point, but, you know, some kind of cooling tower where the heat rises and goes away from everything. And no, then dude, you like have airflow. A air year flow. from now, you're going to read an article and someone's going to implement your exact <laughs> design. You're going to be like, God damn it. They were listening <laughs> to the show. <laughs> it's going to be like an old nuclear facility or something. Yeah. That would be great. Oh, you're uh, still silent. Still silent. One second. <laughs> I have not used Alpine Linux either. Um, it kind of sounds like a, a Docker version of CoreOS. Is that? I know Keith, you're working on your audio stuff. I'm just trying to continue with the, the stories. It they sounds do like the next version of macOS, like Alpine. Alpine. Yeah. <laughs> Has there been an Alpine? No. No, there hasn't, right? So, so um, to answer your question, Paul. Alpine Linux, a distro that pops up a lot in Docker containers. So Alpine is it's not CoreOS. Um, it's what's the right word? Is it Alpine is used more because it is it is more minified than your Ubuntu's mm. than um, your I Debian's. Like I like it already. Uh, now, it, it right, which is why it's good for Docker containers. Yeah. Now the other side of it though is is this right? So it's not your Gentoo's or your Arch Linux either, right? It's not I so like it minified. Even more that it's more now. Ridiculous <laughs> Um, Talk about holy wars. But the the problem here is is this, right? So it's used in a lot of containers because of the fact that it's so small, so thin. And so uh, this particular uh, issue that was brought forward, so that you're talking about bugs, breaches, and more, story number one, um, was uh, a, basically a researcher who started their own crowdsourced security bug bounty program or company, um, Mar uh, Max Justix. Uh, found a remote code execution flaw. And so, as we all know, remote code execution is pretty bad. And ultimately what it was is you'd have to be able to play man in the middle to uh, the APK process, which is similar to like the apt-get or to the yum install process for Alpine. Uh, and so if you got man in the middle, men in the middle traffic there, you could uh, effectively leverage um, arbitrary code execution of the APK as it's installing on the device to then get remote code execution and, you know, maybe persist or, or do any number of other things. Um, what was interesting about that is in the article, uh, Justix told, uh, in this case, the story was in the register, in the default configuration of Alpine, if I can man in the middle of the traffic going to the machine that is running the APK command, I can make that machine execute the arbitrary code. And I can also allow the Docker container build process or command to succeed even after my malicious code ran. So so basically it's like he can, he can now sit in the middle of that traffic. And I think there was another one in here that he said something about um, Alpine specifically, how it has problems with potential man in the middle traffic. But um, in, in the end of the day, in my mind, man in the middle is not hard per se, depending on uh, you know the package that's being installed, 
where it lives, where it's, you know, if you're adding uh, other repositories, you know, that are maybe third party repositories to pull down additional APKs for installed software, could easily get uh, some sort of man in the middle there. So yeah, this was not great. And by the way, most of the packages uh, handled by APK are not served via TLS. So tampering is actually somewhat trivial there. And it depends uh, on what your threat model is too. So if your threat model is nation state or something like that, then you could easily get on a cellular network or something like that and be able to serve things to people that are not connecting. I don't even, can you, I mean, we don't even have like VPNs to our app stores. So I don't know how we could possibly, unless we're doing um, uh, CRC checks on, the things that we're downloading and who really does that on mobile. Yeah, I, think you're, I think you're right. I think largely it's left to the end user because there's been a lot of attacks on Android that I've seen, especially like you can just slip other APKs into the APK uh, to execute attacks and all that stuff. So yeah, I don't think that that's being done. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it sounds like they need to start getting a lot of these packages uh, verified, maybe with some code signing, get them behind, you know, secure connections so that man in the middle isn't made possible. Um, otherwise, I could definitely see this being something that that we start to see pop up. I don't know, give it six months, probably less, where companies are breached as a result of, you know, poison containers via APK commands. I mean, earlier this year, Paul, we've seen a number of attacks that uh, were takeovers of GitHub repositories or um, NPM repositories or any number of other things related to, you know, just code storage, right? So I'm not going to be surprised at all when somebody has, you know, a breach of a, a large magnitude because they had a poisoned Docker container because they were using Alpine Linux uh, so, as their, their base for their Docker image. So when you're connected to your, um, your the, the Wi-Fi pineapple fake Starbucks network and you're updating your Docker container, be careful. Is that the more? Yeah, exactly. Story? That's ex- that's a great threat model, and hey, yeah. it's ap- applicable to probably some of our our uh, you know our audience. I mean, heck, even if you're at a conference and you're looking at building a container, um, that container could probably be modified over the air because you're connecting to the conference Wi-Fi. And by the way, like fake conference Wi-Fi, especially at a security conference, is a very real thing. So at any conference, any anywhere. I mean, just don't sure. trust Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> Wi-Fi. Use a VPN always, all the time. I mean, I know that I do. Even on cellular. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm using one right now when I'm talking to Paul. Uh, I can't trust his connection, so. <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> you don't know where it's been. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. April. I, I mean, he's got almost every episode recorded of all of his shows. So, yeah, maybe I don't know. Um, with that, one other one that I wanted to make sure we talked about was uh, that the flaw in Safari iOS. Uh, so this was interesting because it's literally cascading style sheets. Uh, there is some proof of concept code out there. I don't know that Apple has pushed this, but if you effectively just include a little bit of this um, this style sheet uh, doc, like information, you and as you look at it, it looks like it's just really long base64 encoded string. Um, the Safari browser on iOS can't read it, and so it will literally remo- remote restart your iOS device. Um, so yeah, not not great. Uh, basically, you know, looking at base64 base images p- potentially uh, in background, 
on repeat causes iOS to crash. That's an interesting so. implementation of fail securely. <laughs> right? Right. So it's like just maybe don't render or don't think about rendering or don't allow that that style process. Yeah, I don't some know, kind of pop there. up like this is something's wrong. Don't visit the site, malicious site something. Yeah. Well, right. Exactly. So the other th- thing that this tells you, by the way, is if if you're putting your your gray hat, your white hat, your black hat on, uh, and you're thinking, okay, I know that Safari, based on cascading style sheet rendering, crashes the entire operating system yeah. of iOS. How deeply connected is Safari to iOS, right? So well, and how I mean, and it's obviously got obviously missing some kind of bounds checking in there to catch some of these exceptions, right? I mean, right. I don't know. It's not like a traditional variable where you're just trying to stuff more than you should into a variable. The rendering engine is it works differently, I would imagine. Um, but there's definitely some kind of lack of bounds checking. Yeah, that is going to be a bug that comes back uh, yeah. and either has really bad ramifications or gets reported to Apple, who I believe is now paying for iOS bugs as part of their bug bounty um, more openly, at least, than they used to be. So Which who knows? Maybe someone will make some serious cheddar off this. I wonder if that's signature-based or behavioral-based that they're detecting where it reboots. That is a good question. Honestly, it doesn't go yeah, into like, it. And I have bought the test yeah. myself. Hmm. Interesting. Because if it's behavioral-based, then there's probably other things that you could do. If it's signature-based, then that means that somebody created this right well and right. i mean we're going to use our mobile phones to to vote so this could definitely <laughs> be used to disrupt an election because you just send everyone a link that crashes their phone and then they can't vote so it's a good thing i don't have multiple phones <laughs> <laughs> vote early vote uh, often <laughs> you know right well, that's the other thing i didn't, I didn't even <laughs> want to get into that but we can totally go there um yes so story number one under if you build it they will come uh it is actually a little bit of an older story i think it came back uh maybe late last month earlier this month but i wanted to circle back on it because the state of west virginia secretary of state mac warner uh has said that they're going to go ahead and use a blockchain technology uh with a recorded public digital ledger to allow for ballots to be cast by uh, individuals that are overseas in the armed forces in this uh, midterm election. But now let's think about that. That actually is an interesting use case for blockchain and not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, of course, it depends on how the system is implemented. Mobile phones make it a little scary for me. But if you think about what the, the blockchain is, it is very much a public ledger that whose purpose is to preserve uh, transactions, voting systems could benefit from that. I, I think there's you know a lot of work to be done to test that to make sure and ex- do the threat modeling would be an interesting exercise. But that uh, it's also been talked about that they are using blockchain for supply chain management, where you have to maintain a record of all, where all of your stuff is moving from and to. It preserves the integrity of the votes. It does not uh, defend against... Uh, affecting the anything before the vote is cast. So, like we saw at DefCon yep. with uh, with the vote uh, voting machine hacking village, um, it, if it gets into the blockchain, then it's in the blockchain and it gets counted regardless of what happens to the machine or uh, how the votes get into the blockchain. So, yeah, it's a great way to keep integrity of the votes once they're cast, but before they're cast, that's still the problem. 
Yeah, it's it's a client server model, and here the problem is the client, right? You can't determine that the phone wasn't owned. You can't determine that the individual who actually you know is doing the vote was in fact the same person that registered to do the vote via this system, right? Because um, basically what they had you do is they had you, you take a picture of your face and a picture of like your state issued ID, uh, whether that's like your passport or your military and ID or what have you. That's controversial by itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, and and so the other part of it is this, right? They had you take a picture of a two D image. And then they had you take a, like a selfie and they were comparing the outcome of your selfie to your 2D image, which means that they're effectively rendering your face that is the, the supposed to be the 3D representation into a 2D space, meaning you could easily. Yeah, in my mind, you could pretty easily fake that, right? Like you're not even looking for 3D actual rendering on like the face ID of, say, like an, uh, a new iPhone. You're just looking at a comparison of, uh, you know, the structure of the face, which you could easily uh, spoof. So I don't know. I have a lot of questions here. I agree with uh, April, your assessment that the integrity of the vote once it has been cast. Sure. Blockchain makes a little bit of sense here, even though it's like the biggest buzzword since sliced bread. But at the same time, if you're using an Android device that's on like, I don't know, Android 4 uh, and could be remotely rooted, you know, trivially. And someone is just, you know, in an area of the world that's, by the way, not inside of the United States. It's probably pretty close to the borders or within the borders of nations and peoples that don't really like us all that much. Um, yeah, there will be active, uh, you know, measures that people will take to try and, and mess with this. I, I guarantee it. Like, how do you prevent people like Netflix does from connecting with a VPN? Yeah, and saying that you're in the U.S. <laughs> it's a right. yeah, it's an identity part partly identity problem, as well. Yeah, there there are any number of issues that I see with this. It's only going to be used, I guess, by um, service men and women overseas for this first kind of trial run. Uh, and although a number of people have come forward and saying you should not do this, we cannot guarantee <laughs> the security of this application that you're using. Although. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, basically, they say in the article too, right? They say quite literally, um, Joseph Lorenzo Hall, the chief technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology, says mobile voting is a horrific idea. And then they go on to say something to the effect uh, later, uh, where is basically they had, oh, here we go. Um, they say quite literally, a senior Department of Homeland Security official uh, says that, you know, in their efforts to secure the state's voting infrastructure, it has earned praise uh, from Matthew Masterson, that senior Department of Homeland Security official. Congratulations. I know that the government, especially Department of Homeland Security, is supposed to be good at security. All I have to cite here is OPM, and I will leave it at that when it comes to their ability to secure infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, the bar is pretty low. If they're impressed with this, I can tell you I'm not, and I haven't even looked at it for 10 minutes. Well, it sounds so. like they mentioned the praise, but not the criticism, maybe. <laughs> Like, this is yeah. good for this, but blah, blah, blah. We'll just talk about this. Right, right. It's like, okay, all. what did you do to assess it? Where is your, like, you know, assessment report? What sort of flaws were found? Uh, did you do any sort of assessment report? Who did you use to do an assessment? Um, was it the NSA or was it, like, you know, Bob's pen testing uh, from the puppy mill down the street that, you know, we all seem to really hate because they're running no offense to the fine folks at Tenable, but they're running older versions of Nessus and that's all they're doing. And then spitting out a report. Um, whereas by the way, if they were using maybe Tenable.io, I'd be a little bit more trustworthy. 
So I don't know. I just I don't like this at all anywhere. And that it's being used frightens me terrifically. Um, what do you guys want to talk about next? Uh, breach breaches and uh, stock prices, not sock prices. <sighs> I I was hoping it was uh, data breaches affect sock performance in the long run because there's a lot of different directions we could have taken. Prevents that. holes. That's right. <laughs> Loss. April is owning that topic. Her new talk at DerbyCon is is going to be about sock security, and it's all just going to be slide after slide of puns. Well, so the thing is, I could totally see that working for like security operations center too, right? Like, like it could go both ways here. That's what we're saying, yeah. <laughs> so this this was interesting because um, it was actually a, a retrospective, though. So this is going to be uh, story number two under "If You Build It, They Will Come," and it's it's a retrospective on stock performance of companies, uh, twenty eight companies in particular that may have had a major breach. Uh, sometime over like the last 10 years. And what they found is after a year, you know, where a major breach is announced, uh, share price grew by 8.53% on average, but it underperformed the NASDAQ by something like 3.7%. Uh, whereas after two years, average share price rose to 17.78% of, you know, say day of breach, uh, but under for, underperformed the NASDAQ by an additional 11.35%. So it would have been closer to like, you know, 30% yeah, but, uh, uh, growth I, as opposed to 17%. You can't look 17%. at that data and conclusively say that data breaches affect the stock performance in any direction because there's just too many variables to a stock price. Well, I mean, as I learn more about uh, stocks and uh, own some of my own stocks now and paying more attention to it, there, there's so many factors that you, you can't, uh, even from that smaller sampling where... I mean, the majority, uh, a lot of them are retailers as well. So if retail in general was down on the NASDAQ for a certain period of time, that could contribute more to your data than one event in each of those companies. That also, by the way, happened at very different times. So I just, I, I poo-poo this article wholeheartedly on the fact that you can make data say whatever you want and put it on the internet and people believe it. So I've seen a lot of so, data that shows that after a breach, the stock price dips and then it goes back up eventually higher than it was before the breach. Um, if we were an extremely security conscious uh, populace and uh, all of the consumers cared about their data and, uh, and didn't, get, didn't forget about what happened two, three, five years ago, like Target, for example, or something like that, um, then we would not see it go from from here down and then back up. We would see it go from here and down, and the company would go out of business because we'd be like, they are not doing what they're supposed to be right, doing. Right, but don't that. forget that so it can a breach can impact not just consumers but other relationships as well that could impact the business even more significantly. And I don't think we're seeing supply that. Supply like, chain. Yeah, yeah, it's supply chain. But what if, what if Target, for example, right, it's going, well, next year we're going to add 100 stores. And they added 112 because none of that uh, uh, aspect of the business was impacted by the breach. Well, now, so you know, of course, a, number's going to be up. Sorry, Keith, go ahead. Put, putting on my statistician hat for a moment, and I agree, Paul, there are three kinds of lies, which is lies, damned lies, and statistics. Um, <laughs> yep. the, the thing that stands out to me are, are kind of a few things, right? So in total, the, the, the listed companies are just 28 companies, including Apple, Adobe, Anthem, Community Health Systems, Dun & Bradstreet, eBay, Equifax, Experian, Global Payments, yeah, on and on and on, right? The, the point that I think is important here is 
though they are in similar industries and sectors, they aren't all in the same sector necessarily, right? So TJ Maxx is not in the same sector as T-Mobile or uh, Under Armour is not in the same sector as Adobe, right? So there is variance there that I think is, is significant to point out. The other side of it, though, is that all of the analyzed breached companies, all of them had per, poor performance that cannot be ignored as compared to the NASDAQ over a period of time, right? That is an outlier because if it was the case that, okay, sure, they all have a dip and then they all come back as, as April is pointing out, which does happen, right? Um, you would not, you'd have maybe a handful of them or maybe half of them that continue to have poor performance against the NASDAQ comparatively post breach. The fact that all of them have negative impacts compared to the NASDAQ post breach is significant. Um, especially for a sample size of 28, which is also considered statistically significant because it is also a varied sample with a lot of different companies. Sure, many of them are tech companies, but not all of them. Um, in fact, a number of them aren't tech companies. So I don't know. I, I think that there's some merit to what's being shared here. Yes, I am, of course, always a little bit um, leery of such things, especially when it comes to um, stock performance and statistics. But here, I thought it was it was interesting, right? Because it, it felt like it was at least a decently uh, well done, you know, uh, article and study as opposed to your traditional, hey, uh, we're going to send out an email and have everybody vote on a survey, right? So, I don't know. Any final thoughts there? Mm, no. I think that at least with some of those companies, you're dealing with brand loyalty too, especially, let's say, Apple. Not uh, yet. And T-Mobile as well. Nike. I mean, they have... <laughs> No. <laughs> I would just nope. throw that out there to see if anyone would, would, would know. Okay. Nope. Um, so like <laughs> Apple, for example, they're always going to have certain brand loyalty in a certain area. There are a lot of competitors that are trying to surpass them. They've also had their share of uh, losses and uh, per, you know personal um, impact, let's say, uh, over the past 10 years where uh, – I, I I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to quantify. I mean, as you add them all together and average them, if they're all below Nasdaq, then yes, that is significant. Um, would they be below Nasdaq anyway? Mm. Were they before? Where's the Where's right. the comparison of where they were to Nasdaq before the breach? And mm. also, um, do do consumers assume that after a breach a company is going to fix their problems so after a breach let's say we'll talk about target as the like ubiquitous example um are they going to fix their supply chain problems are th are, are consumers going to assume they were breached it cost them money their stock dropped all these things happened and then uh now they're better like it, it's like uh, you know you get like cancer removed or something like now you're better like is that what people think of of the companies or are well, they we as infosec people certainly think that because uh, you know my wife and family and friends will ask me like oh this place just got breached like should I I shop there I'm like well if you used your credit card there like someone already has it so that ship has sailed i'm like secondly it's probably the more secure store to shop in right now post breach because they're really paying attention to security because they just got and breached. they brought in third parties yeah. to look at different things and 
yeah, but does that affect the long term and and mm. how does it compare to before? So there's no comparison in terms of that s particular statistic involving the Nasdaq. In the article, you're right. I mean, if it doesn't actually point to like, you know, the trending that they were on if they had not been breached. And I think you probably could reasonably, you know, go back if, if any uh, any of our listeners happen to, you know, watch stocks and have software to do this, you probably could go back and project those things and show, you know, mm -hmm. gaps, right? Um, the article, they don't. So you bring up a good point. That would be really interesting as a follow-on to, to see as well. Um, were there any additional, you know, uh, articles in here that you guys saw that you want to talk about before we hopped off i did want to make sure we touched on just, the yeah. uh this week's commit strip but well, one last thing i just i haven't seen any voip uh pen testing frameworks in quite some time and there used to be a podcast that i think was called blue box security podcast something like that uh and this one's called blue box ng it's a node.js voip penetration testing framework i hadn't seen much happen in the voip space and security and pen testing in a while maybe i'm just not looking in the right places but i thought that was interesting yeah, so it's uh, learning and tools number two. Uh, so that was actually I saw this and I was like, whoa, yeah, I haven't seen anything in the VoIP space either for some time. Uh, but here we had someone built, uh, as you said, you know, Blue Box NG, which is a Node.js framework, includes auto VoIP, uh, UC pen testing, report generation, performance, RFC compliance, SIP TLS and IPv6 support, SIP over web sockets, and support for RFC 711 uh, or 7118. Uh, Shodan, so it also has some Shodan stuff in there. Uh, SIP SQLI checks, SIP torture, or RFC 4475 for partial support. Uh, geolocation, command completion, cross-platform support, automatic vulnerability searching, including CVE, OSVDB, and NVD, automatic exploit searching for exploit DB, packet storm, and metasploit, dumb fuzzing. I mean, this thing looks like it's got a lot of goodness to it. I haven't played with it yet because I really don't have any VoIP, you know, like stuff to go play with here, but Man, I mean, Node.js coming out swinging with this one. So I thought that this was kind of cool. Awesome. Have you guys talked at all on any of your shows about the Tesla? Uh, and I talk about like defensive security and preventative security and social engineering. But have you talked at all about the Tesla uh, copying of the key? Uh, yeah, we covered that on Security Week okay, last week. Okay, good. Because yes. that, that yeah. just blew me. I was just like, really? Like... <laughs> Yeah, key space problems, and yeah, yeah that was just like, oh. Your firmware yeah. updated on your car and get a new key fob to, if it was manufactured before June of this year, I believe. Eventually, we'll have two-factor on our cars. <laughs> your fingerprint and your fob. Right. Or your, your face print or whatever it is, yeah. The window is, is grabbing your face as you're walking up. To, oh or or the way you sit there. in the chair. Yeah, it true. Could, yeah, it's kind of like a like the, uh, print of your bottom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> how it cradles you. Yeah, it's actually, it's uh, actually a pretty. Uh, it's a good idea until someone else has to borrow your car for something. Yeah, uh, you just add other people. Just be like, go sit in the front seat for a minute. I'll <coughs> add you to my car. Yeah, mm. you, you could put it in like ballet mode. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> I think it would. Yeah. Know, there you go. It depends how often you drive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it would have to track changes in your butt over time. <laughs> that sounds really like. It this sounded, didn't RFC. sound that bad in my head when I verbalized it. I was like, wow, that sounds RFC. Horrible. Yes. You get on that. <laughs> so I would actually call it, Paul, I would call it the butt authentication mechanism or <laughs> BAM. Yeah, that's right. The BAM. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've completely gone off the rails, I want to point all of our listeners. I to think April should, be, should come back every week because I laughed hysterically <laughs> during the show. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Um, by the way, speaking of uh, more laughter, story number three under food for thought is uh, it's not an app uh, from Commit Strip. Commit so strip with that, April, thanks for joining us on the show. It was great having you here. Glad that uh, you get to join us and, and have a bit of laughs with Paul in studio. And for everyone else, thank you for joining us for this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy.